Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves, world champions. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to From the Diamond right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you following a very eventful weekend for the Atlanta Braves who closed down a, I think, a much-needed sweep. You love winning series, Corey, but getting the sweep was something the Braves have been working on for about a month. They've had several opportunities. It hasn't exactly worked out, but we're going to talk about what went right on Sunday. And there's a name that I think Braves fans are pretty familiar with when it comes to what's going right for the Atlanta Braves in the month of July we got a lot to get into, of course. It is the trade deadline looming here on Tuesday, so we're going to talk about what the Braves could be targeting and, of course, all the MLB trade rumors. Get you caught up on the divisional races and take a look at what is a big week ahead for the Atlanta Braves. Corey, I would say this qualifies as a jam-packed show. Yeah, and this is going to be a blast, and it gets no better than what happened Sunday. Austin Riley, man, putting a ridiculous cap on, I mean, there's really no way to put it, the best month really ever for a Braves hitter. It was that good from Austin Riley. Yeah, and there are so many different numbers that would tell you exactly that. And usually when you're talking about best month for a hitter, you're thinking, okay, well, best month of a hitter's career. Great. Austin Riley looked awesome in the month of July. That's not surprising. But then you start thinking about the names that he was approaching in Braves franchise history and the names that he has approached and passed or joined some very elite company with When it came to just the pure number of extra base hits for this guy this month, Corey, 26 total extra base hits, most ever by a Braves hitter in franchise history. It surpassed Hank Aaron in 1961. And as I've said many, many times, and will probably say many more times, at least I hope I will, if you're on a list with Hank Aaron as far as your (laughs) offensive exploits, you are doing something right. So you brought this up last week. Is Austin Riley an MVP candidate? And, you know, I'm going to admit I was a little skittish jumping into that. I just... Maybe it's because we watched this kid show up right after he was drafted and to watch him go mm-hmm. through the you know, the ebbs and flows of finding himself. Austin Riley is without question now an MVP candidate. And, and I threw this out to you. There are 13 players who have ever had more extra base hits in a month than Austin Riley just had. He equaled some insane guys on this list. Now, you've given me this list, but you need to give the listeners this list because when you hear these names, it will underscore exactly how ridiculously good the month of July was for Austin Riley. Let's hear it. Yeah, these are the other guys who had 26 extra base hits in a month. Ted Williams, Jimmy Fox, Mm -hmm. Babe Ruth, Tris Speaker, Ty Cobb, and another one by Babe Ruth. I know some of these guys, and some of these guys we have not seen play for a very long time. You and I have never seen play in our life, but we've got archival footage and the legend of these players, and of course their places in Cooperstown are well known. So that's not to jump so far ahead where I ask you this week, Corey, is Austin Riley a Hall of Famer? But I am going to say (laughs) that this 26 extra base hit month in which he hit well over 400, in which he drove in, what, 25 runs, scored over 20 runs, hit 11 home runs, had, what, 15, 16 doubles, no, 15 doubles, on the month, I mean, this is the kind of thing that takes you from having a good season or even a really good season 
to having a great season. He's climbed inside the top ten and wins above replacement in both baseball in both baseball references list and of course Fangraphs list. And that's some pretty elite company. If you're a top ten player and across Major League Baseball, you're doing more than a few things right to get up there. And for Austin, he's now what two doubles away from matching his total from his breakout season of 2021. He is four homers away from equaling his 33 home runs he hit last year. This is a guy that I think the best is yet to come. And as I said last week, you know, I was asked for a bold prediction in the second half. And I went, I want to go bolder than, hey, the Braves are going to track down the Mets and win their fifth straight divisional title. I do think they're going to do that. But I said Austin Riley is going to lead the National League in home runs. And I feel pretty good about that. And this extra base hit month and this tear that he's been on should have Braves fans feeling pretty good about this guy's place among the players in this franchise and, of course, all of the National League. I, I mean, it's wild. If you go back to June 30th, he has literally been the best player in baseball. He leads the majors in fan graph war during that time period ahead of Aaron Judge. He has the best weighted run creative plus ahead of Aaron Judge. He's hitting 33 points better than anybody in this month. I mean, it's not just been, okay, the guy's gone on a power surge this month. It's been the yeah. full game it offensively has it's been an absolute showcase for Austin Riley. Yeah, we're talking about multi-hit games. We're talking about big home runs. We're talking about driving in runs. Of course, if you're on base that many times, you're going to score runs. And I think he's been holding down the hot corner pretty well himself. I know the metrics don't necessarily love him as far as advanced stuff goes, but he passes the eye test more times than not for me. I think he's turned himself into a very good defensive third baseman. And of course, at the plate, he has been outstanding. So that's something that's going right for the Braves. And a big reason why the Braves were able to sweep away the Arizona Diamondbacks was that walk-off hit, bottom of the ninth inning, a double from Austin Riley, scores Matt Olson. But we talked about this and have been talking about this for a while. The Braves keep winning series, so it's hard to quibble with that. I love the fact that they keep winning series. But, Corey, they had how many opportunities to sweep away series prior to this one? Six different times in the last month, since the end of June, and they were finally able to put away a series sweep and win a day game where it didn't feel like that was something that they were going to do ever again the way that things have been going this month. No, and, and I mean, you, you get two wins above the Angels, a, thing, a team that you should be able to win. You take out, you know... A, you, you, a, beat a, you beat Otani. Yeah, you beat Otani. You, you squelched him, and you think you're going to be able to get a, a sweep against them. Doesn't happen. Uh, this Arizona team, just, I mean, I don't know that you can collectively say that there was a series that was pitched so well uh, when you think about what the starters were able to accomplish here. 19 innings when they allowed uh, mm-hmm. two earned runs. Uh, over the, uh, that time period, I mean, they were just, I mean, it was collectively just a really well-pitched series from the Brave starters, and I mean, it got no better than Saturday with Ian Anderson, and then Max Freed just comes out dealing on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, this was like, I mean, these things were an echo of one another, and you needed, you really needed to see it from Ian Anderson, and there's no two ways about that. His season has been a struggle at times. I think Ian at times has really been searching and found himself in the loneliest place on a baseball field, which is on top of that mound, all by yourself, without the answers and without the pitches that he needs in his arsenal in order to be able to do the things we've become accustomed to seeing from him. This Saturday start for him, six innings, one hit, no runs, one walk, and tied his career high of nine strikeouts. I'm not going to say he solved it all, but this was the most in command, the most poised, and the best that he has mixed his pitches in quite some time. It was, and I mean, I think it's it. It's very easy to say he struggled. I mean, you think about a six two five ERA, three oh three batting average yeah. against in his previous twelve. Uh, in June, opponents were hitting four eighty one against that four seam fastball. In July, that number was the three oh eight. Saturday, the D backs went hitless against that four seam. Obviously, he allowed one hit on the day. He threw forty, but I thought the 
thing that was really interesting was he ratcheted up his curveball yes. usage through nearly 24% of those, the most in any game since May 27th. Um, again, teams have had a lot of success against that four seam, and it's kind of made that change up. You know, not as effective. And I, I thought the fact that he was able to locate the fastball, work off that, and work in that changeup. I just thought, from a full arsenal standpoint, this was really the best that we've seen. Ian, Ian, excuse me, Ian Anderson look in a long time. Yeah, and it's the fastball command that yeah. sets everything up. And that sounds so simple and so rudimentary because every pitcher would tell you, "Well, it all starts with locating my fastball, with getting ahead, with being on the attack." We hear all of these things multiple times you know, throughout a baseball season, multiple times a week, maybe even multiple times a day, depending on who you talk to and how deep they want to get into it. But being able to throw his fastball for a strike is the number one thing that makes his changeup not just a pitch that he can throw for strikes, which I think that he can, but a pitch that batters are going to chase. But when they're routinely ahead in the count, 2-0, and 2-1, and 3-1, and and some of those days where the walks have really been a problem for Ian Anderson, it's almost like with the fastball not being effective, as you said, it eliminates his changeup, and then there's nothing really else for the hitters to think about. And Ian Anderson, I think, does have a good curveball. And when he was drafted, the crazy thing, if you really think about this, is he was a fastball, curveball kind of pitcher when he was drafted, and this is as a high school kid, but he found his changeup as a minor leaguer, and it became his best pitch without question. It's an 80-grade changeup. It's one of the best in baseball but it hasn't been a weapon for him this year because of his struggles commanding the strike zone. But that was something that we saw very much adjusted by Ian Anderson with the usage of some of his pitches and by the fact that he was in and around the strike zone throughout that start. Hopefully the first of many still to come for Ian Anderson. And it's not just the Braves right-hander who's looking for answers and grinding his way through what was a challenging month of July. You look at the top of the order and it's Ronald Acuna Jr. with a 600 OPS through 24, make it 25 games now here in July. That's not the kind of number that we usually talk about with Ronald Acuna. 600 slugging, yes. 600 OPS, not so much. Only one home run in the month of July. He did have three doubles, but the extra base hits really weren't there, and he really hasn't been able to drive the ball and look like the player that we expect to see. And I know he's been taking extra batting practice, working before games, trying to get things adjusted. Sometimes it just takes time, but this is going to snap back, I think, in a big-time way because Ronald Acuna Jr. is quite simply too talented for this to go this way for this much longer. I mean, I think that's what you have to bank on, right, is that there's just too much talent there. I mean, obviously the guy's still – I mean, I think we just tend to forget what he's coming back from. And there were obviously missteps along the way, you know, little tic-tac injuries along the way. Mm-hmm. But we've mentioned this before, all of the peripherals on him, all those, those rate stats that you look at and think, okay, this, these are the rate stats of an elite player – they're all still there. Yeah. It's just, I think he just set such a ridiculous standard for what we mm-hmm. expect for him that to watch a guy suffer through a month in which he hit 24% below league average, that's not what you're looking for, what you anticipate from Acuna. And maybe we thought the All-Star game was going to be that thing that mm-hmm. picked him up, but um, patience it just has to continue to be part of the plan with him. I mean, it's a bad month for anybody, statistically speaking. No one's going to sit here and tell you, oh, well, the stats are actually okay. No, the production's not there, and that's what raises the flag of saying at least one of the red flags that says, hey, what's going on here? Then you start to look at the fact that his launch angle has been off for, I would say, better than a month now with just one home run from a guy like Ronald Acuna Jr. And I did think maybe that home run derby, and maybe this was just wishful thinking for a lot of us, Maybe being in that home run derby, which is an exercise where you were designed to lift and drive the baseball, might be something that could kind of kickstart him and get him going a little bit. He did hit 19 home runs in the derby, and he was pitched tougher than anybody else in that home run derby as well. But (laughs) that aside, he's been pitched pretty tough, I think, in general. And it's going to be just a matter of making his adjustments at the plate 
you know, having been away for a while, coming back in, and the expectations being what they are, I can't imagine that that's not a thought that doesn't rattle around in the back of one's mind. Because not only does do people look around and say, hey, Ronald doesn't look like he's the player that we expect him to be, what do you think he feels like? Because he's not used to this whole failure thing, and it is quite a teacher. It is. If you go back to his across his entire season, his, excuse me, his entire career, he's never had a month in which he's had over 100 plate appearances and hit lower than he just did against right. 76 way to run creative plus. And it's the way that he's being pitched. He's seeing out of zone pitches the highest rate of his career. Um, he's chasing higher than he has in three seasons. Um, he's just out of sorts, and it just feel, feels like he's he, he's searching for answers, and they're not there within the fastball, which he used to crush. And uh, I just don't know where the answer lies. I mean, maybe there's going to be a moment where you say, okay, he's back. Uh, or, you know, maybe it's going to have to be a year that you flush away, and he's going to need that, that offseason to get himself back. But I know that's not what anybody wants to hear, but yeah. I just don't know what the path back is for, uh, for Acuna right yeah, now. Yeah, and I don't know that I'm at that point where it's like, and I'm not saying that you are either, yeah. that you need to hit the panic button that you know, over the next two months there's no chance of getting it back because I feel like Ronald Acuna Jr. is one good series away from turning his whole season around because that's the kind of player that he's been. There have been some peaks and valleys before, but let me tell you about the peaks. When he goes on a tear... He doesn't just go, you know, hey, Ronald Acuna hit 350 last week with a couple of home runs and scored six runs. No, it's Ronald Acuna batted 450 last week with seven home runs. Like, that's the kind of potential and the kind of power that this guy has. So, not to harp on this for too long, but just to say as we close the month in July and we look ahead to what is ahead of the Braves in the month of August, which is nine games against the Mets basically over the next two weeks, I would be fine with Ronald Acuna Jr. showing up there in a big way even if the month of July was not what he wanted it to be. Speaking of showing up in a big way, Matt Olson is not. It joins Austin Riley, I think, as two of the most productive Braves hitters. It wasn't just Austin carrying the Braves' offense here in July, as Olson was able to knock in 25 runs, which led the National League for July. He also hit nine home runs, the most of any month since putting on a Braves uniform. I think these are good signs, because these two guys obviously batting back-to-back in the lineup between Olson and Riley. This is a one-two punch the Braves very much need, not to mention once you get things going with Ronald Acuna. And you almost look at what Olsen was able to accomplish and say, you know, where would this team be without him and Austin Riley with Acuna not getting that level of production yeah. that we anticipate from him? But, you know, nine of his 21 home runs have been hit uh, since July 8th. He leads the National League, ranks second in the majors in that department. You go back to July 4th, and, you know, he's hit, he's got... You know, 267 average, 330 uh, OBP, and a 628 slugging, ex- uh, 13 extra base hits. It took him some time, right? And, you know, he, he kind of went through that lull period. Uh, but, man, he's, he's looked really, really good of late, yep. and, and certainly him and Riley together. I mean, he was on base for that walk-off today, yep. and he just keeps coming through. These are the two names we were calling on Sunday, and the Braves very happy to see it. Matt Olson got on base. Austin Riley brought him around. The Braves swept the Diamondbacks, and this series wrapped up in a pretty nice way. We got a lot to talk about here on From the Diamond as we continue on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. This, of course, is a big week ahead of us with the trade deadline looming. Braves will be looking to make some moves. Who could they be targeting? Corey and I will talk about that as we continue. This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. All right, play ball! Your place for all things MLB and our Braves. This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We appreciate you making us part of your Sunday. It was a good one for the Braves as they finished off their sweep of the Arizona Diamondbacks. And, of course, you can catch us every Sunday here on The Game. You can also find From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast. So feel free to go ahead and give us a subscription over there. 
And you can follow along on social media if you enjoy all this Braves talk because it's pretty much what we do on a regular basis. You can find me at Grant McCauley. You can find Corey at Corey J. McCartney. You can find the show at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end along on Twitter. Uh, Corey, as we know, this is a big week, not just because the Braves move into August and this Mets showdown is looming, but as all baseball fans know, it's trade deadline time. It's it's the 31st. It feels kind of weird to not be talking about it having happened or happening or coming down right now. It got moved to August the 2nd thanks to the lockout and all of the things that uh, with the fallout of that. So 6 p.m. on Tuesday. We know the Atlanta Braves have some needs. I, we know that they're going to make some trades. I have no doubt about that. What it's going to be, how many they're going to make, who they're going to get, those are the questions we're asking ourselves, not just for the Braves, but, of course, across all of baseball. And teams with the expanded playoff have to approach this, I think, a little bit differently. And we'll talk a lot more about that later. Yeah, I mean, it's gonna, it, it makes for kind of a convoluted situation, right? Because previously you kind of knew who was going to be the buyers and who was going to be the sellers, but there's so many teams now that just are, are on the peripheral there, just on yeah. the, you know, you think, okay, the Orioles, for instance, I mean, that's a team that hasn't had a winning season in, you know, eons, and they're in position, they're above 500, they're in striking distance. What do you do? Do you, do you buy? Do you sell? I mean, that's, it just creates so much more intrigue with so many extra teams kind of in the mix for those postseason spots. You really do, but the one we're going to focus on right now is the Atlanta Braves and you and I do a little show called Battery Power. You can find it on YouTube if you haven't subscribed over there. I would highly suggest that. It's much like this show, only in video form, and we cover a lot of fun Braves topics throughout the week. And the topic du jour this week is, of course, trade. So we were talking about different targets that the Braves could be looking at. We know Alex Anthopoulos likes to keep everything close to the vest. So this is all just looking around the league, trying to see what kind of players would be a fit for the Braves. And we found out over the last, what, week or so that the Braves needed to go out and look for some help, I think, in the outfield mix because Adam Duvall was lost a season-ending wrist surgery. So, Corey, as we did on Battery Power and as we've watched some of the deals that have been made and expect more deals to be coming down the line in the not-too-distant future before Tuesday's 6 p.m. deadline, who do you look at in left field around the league to think this is a player that could really help the Braves out from that depth perspective? Yeah, I mean, you couched it a little bit there, right? Alex Anthopoulos moves in silence, so rarely yes. do you ever hear anything that he's actually thinking about until it comes uh, to fruition. But um, you know, obviously a right-handed bat would be helpful. I really, and I know he's going to have a lot of interest, I think Ian Happ from the Cubs would just be a fantastic addition because not only can he man all three positions in the in the outfield, but he can also play second base when you think about the fact that they've had you know, bottom five production at second base since Ozzy Albies went down. And I know there's the anticipation that he's going to get back, but that may not be until, you know, late August. It could be into September. So I think you have to look at the production there. You know, Hap is a switch hitter. You know, he's got over 900 OPS against Southpaws. He's hit, um, you know, above league average from both sides of the plate. And also, this is a guy who has another year club control. So I think he really makes a, a lot of sense. Michael A. Taylor from the Royals is another name that the Braves have been linked to. I've heard so about I think, that. Yeah, he's a, a really good um, de- uh, defensive center fielder, and you think about pairing him uh, you know, with uh, with Michael Harris a second, what that outfield could look like. I mean, he's another guy that hitting above league average. So I don't know that they're going to make that move that you're like, oh, wow, like they did a year ago, you know, bringing in all those guys. But I think those are two names that I think are really interesting in options in terms of the outfield. Well, I hope that the Braves don't ever have to be in a position <laughs> yeah. where you have to totally remake yeah. a positional group, which is what Atlanta found itself in last year with the loss of Ronald Acuna Jr., with the fact that Christian Pache didn't pan out, with uh, with the injury to Marcelo Zuna, then his off-field problems, he was no longer in the picture. So your opening day outfield was gone by the All-Star break. So all of those moves were out of necessity. This is... You know, is there necessity here? Yes, but I feel like it's more of adding to a club that already at over 20 games over 500 
you know is performing fairly well, has a fifth-best record in all of baseball, that would tell you this is a winning club. But Alex Anthopoulos has never really sat back and said, okay, well, they're winning, and that's good enough. It's always been, where can I add quality and quantity? Because he did it when he remade the bullpen in 2019. He did it in 2018 even when he went out and made several trades in which he got Kevin Gosman, among others, to fortify the rotation. He acquired Adam Duvall back then. Those were some big trades, to say nothing of what 2021 was when we were talking about all of the outfielders that joined the Braves and, of course, the magical run that they went on to win the World Series. I am looking at another outfielder in particular. I'm looking out to Oakland because the Braves and A's, of course, have a little bit of trade history not too long ago as Matt Olson came over just prior to the season and one of the biggest trades that Alex Anthopoulos has made and one of the biggest trades in franchise history. I look at Ramon Laureano as a guy that is interesting to me, and this is where I feel like you know Alex Anthopoulos and, and other GMs are really looking for value. If you're going to give up prospects in a trade, why not get a player that you have control of for a few years? Laureano is under team con- control through 2025. I'm not saying he's going to be the cheapest option out there. I'm not saying he's necessarily the best fit, but he's a guy that hits for power. He runs well. He plays good defense. And he could really help balance out the loss of Adam Duvall, who did a lot of those things, particularly the power in the defense. Yeah, without question. I mean, certainly you're going to get a guy you know who has years. And I think that's the biggest thing with the Braves is because it's not as though this is a team that you feel like, man, they're one piece away and they're going to be right. But this is this is a you know, obviously really solid crew. And when you get Ozzy Albies back, you know they're going to be that much better. I don't think that they need to make you know a really wholesale change. But if you could make an addition that would allow you to have somebody. You know, for years, which I, I think uh, again, when I mentioned Happ in that regard, mm-hmm. um, that's you know that's why you and I have talked about you know if you look at second, you know Brandon Drury from the Reds is an interesting guy yes. who's who's really really cheap. He's only making nine hundred thousand dollars this year, but he's also a free agent after the season's over with. So what are you giving away in a farm system that you know we have to be honest is not what it once was because so yeah. many guys have graduated up. You've of moved course. other pieces. How much are you willing to give up for a rental as opposed to somebody that you've got and know that you can build around for a couple of years? Yeah, and the interesting thing about the farm system, because I know a lot of people point at that, and they're like, well, the Braves don't really have a top farm system anymore. And I don't know that necessarily everybody's saying it in regards of it being, oh, well, they've mismanaged their assets down there. No, it's the fact that once guys start graduating and once you start winning at the big league level, it changes the, you know where you were drafting at that point. I think the Braves have made some pretty shrewd and astute picks in the draft in recent years, but no – This is not where it was in 2015, 16, 17 when you talked about the Braves as the best farm system in baseball because Ronald Acuna Jr., Ozzie Albies, Dansby Swanson, Max Fried, and several others, Austin Riley, have all become major players for the Braves. I mean, Michael Harris was drafted after the Braves started winning divisions and has become the team's starting center fielder, so it can still happen, but you don't have, I think, the same quantity, and the Braves have also not been dealing around trying to pick up prospects by unloading some of their players to do so because the rebuild portion of this exercise is thankfully over and you've now won the World Series. So I say all of that to say while the Braves may not have that number one farm system, it's also worth thinking about teams don't necessarily look at those rankings and use those as their guide to who they're going to pick up. Some of those are fairly obvious. Others, they're going to rely on scouting and looking for players that they do feel like fit and those kind of trades still happen and it's not always necessarily, well, I need your top four prospects according to this periodical, this magazine, <laughs> this website. Exactly. I mean, it's a lot like college football recruiting, right? It's like we look at these guys as four stars and five stars, but the right. teams obviously are going to gauge these guys out. is something completely different. And, and to kind of hit on you know, where the, the state of this farm system is, think about preseason. The top two guys in terms of prospects in this system were Spencer Strider and Michael Harris II. And what are they doing now? And they're both off the board, and now Vaughn Grissom is, is moved up. 
uh, on the updated uh, prospect rankings to be your Braves number one right now with mm-hmm. Kyle Muller behind him in terms of MLB pipeline. So things have changed, and certainly you're getting a lot of production out of two guys, and I'm sure if you were to include in any trade, you could probably get almost anybody you want. Yeah, you really could. I mean, I don't even, I don't want to waste all the time on the show, but we saw the MLB network, because they're doing the same thing we're doing. Yep. They're saying who would be good targets, only they're doing it in a way that I don't know that we'll do. I mean, what would it take for the Braves to get Shohei Otani? The answer is a bunch of good players. And the graphics showed, you know, it would take Kyle Wright and it would take Michael Harris and it would take Kyle Muller and it would take Braden Shoemake. I think that was the four guys that ended up on that draft on that graphic. But this is not a trade that would be headlined by number one pitching prospect Kyle Muller. This would be trading a middle to front of the rotation starter in Kyle Wright and also trading your center fielder of the future if you were to do that. It was a fascinating debate on Twitter, which was you know, I, I think behaving a little bit better with that one than some other debates that we've had on there about other things. But yeah. it's still not a deal that I feel like the Braves are going to be out there doing. If it costs you a guy like Michael Harrison, if it costs you a, a pitcher like Kyle Wright, you're going to need more than just over one calendar year. I'm, as I said on Twitter, I got serious Mark Teixeira vibes when I started thinking about <laughs> making a deal like that and not having the guy around for longer than one guaranteed year. Uh, so we looked at the bullpen as another place that the Braves could use some help. I do want to do, as say as you do, I want to couch this by saying that Kirby Yates is on his way back. He's allowed one run and five relief appearances, struck out nine batters in five and a third innings, so some pretty good work happening down there. But I think the Braves could use another bullpen arm, and I think we both looked at the Detroit Tigers, a club that's not going anywhere this year that has some very nice pieces that it could trade away. I like Joe Jimenez, the former all-star uh, right-hander for the Tigers who has really turned his year around. His ERA has improved drastically. His fielding independent pitching has also improved beyond that. He's striking out nearly 12.5 batters per nine, and he's not walking anybody either. This is the kind of right-handed arm I would like to add to complement some of the Braves' better left-handers, which include, of course, A.J. Minter, Tyler Matzik. Will Smith's been struggling, but I do feel like another righty. Dylan Lee has been a breath of fresh air to this bullpen. He's been a huge shot in the arm. And then, of course, you got Kenley Jansen down there at the end, but I feel like you can always use more arms in the bullpen. But every contender is going to be out there thinking that. And this is the easiest way to upgrade at the at the deadline, right? I mean, if you're looking to make some make some kind of a move or you're not going to break the bank, the bullpen is always the easiest place that you're going to upgrade. And I think the Kirby Yates thing is interesting because from that end, it's like, okay, well, maybe they don't need another righty. If Kirby mm-hmm. Yates is going to look something like he did, and I'm not saying he's going to be the guy who saved, you know, 40 games in the past, but certainly he changes a little bit of the planning here where maybe you can look at another yep. Tiger in, ter- in terms of Andrew Chafin, who has got a 2.64 ERA through 30 and 230, striking out almost 11 batters per nine. Um, another name that I, I mentioned to you before was a former uh, all-star starter, Matt Moore, who's been a sensational reliever uh, for the Rangers this year with a, just a little over a 1.6 ERA. Um, he's been really, really good. Giovanni Soto is another name for the Tigers that I think is going to get a lot of traction yeah, as well. But you're going to have to, and he's got three years of control, so that yeah. you're going to be paying a lot of money to get him away from Detroit, but I would anticipate the Tigers are going to be fleeced uh, when all is said and done, you know, as they just got so many, you know, arms here. Chafin is interesting too, because uh, he's on the restricted list for the Tigers as they go up to Toronto. So that's a guy who is not vaccinated. And that, I mean, I I say that just because it changes the amount of teams who potentially are going to be in on these guys. Cause we know teams like the Yankees need bullpen help, but are they going to be less, you know, less interested in somebody who, if they feel like they got to go through the Blue Jays, may not be interested in him? Well, if you take the Andrew Benintendi trade as any indication, then they're not going to let it stop. That's true. Them because this is one of the biggest dominoes that's fallen thus far. We know about the Yankees needing some help. They just had to put Giancarlo Stanton on the injured list. They already 
needed to figure out something in their outfield because Joey Gallo hasn't worked. And that's another name that's been thrown around. When you talk about the Braves needing somebody with power and defense to make up for Adam Duvall, the loss of Adam Duvall, could Joey Gallo be a guy, if you're buying him for pennies on the dollar, that would be worth taking a flyer on? Because we're not talking about the Robinson Cano situation here where it's a 39-year-old player on his third team coming off a one-year suspension. There's different optics here. There's a, a different case to be made for Joey Gallo. He has been terrible in New York, though. I, I cannot stress enough how poorly he has played from an offensive perspective in New York. And I do think as the Yankees look to make their moves and streamline their roster and bring in reinforcements, it feels like his days in the Bronx are numbered. But is that where you want to be? And is this kind of echoes of 2021 with a guy like, say, Jorge Soler. Well, with Ben Intendi, by the way, he said he was open-minded about you know, his sure. vaccination status. So maybe that's all Andrew Chafin would need to tell the Yankees that he's open-minded. Yeah. But um, you know, Joey Gallo is uh, owed $3.4 million for the remainder of this season. If the Yankees are going to eat part of that, uh, I think and they're going to almost going to have to. I mean, this guy's an 81 way to run creative plus. He's got 12 home runs. I mean, the, the strikeout rate, he's always been that kind of testament of the three true outcome guy in yes. this era. But he's striking out nearly 40% of the time. Um, it's just, I mean, even by his own standards, yeah. he is extremely elevated right now. But I, he, he plays really good defense, mm-hmm. and if you can get him on the cheap, uh, I think that's something you got to look at. So this becomes my curiosity with this this kind of experiment. Yes, the Jorge Soler thing did work out. He came over and was a well-above league average hitter, an impact hitter for the Atlanta Braves upon being traded over. But, you know, it, it seems like with Soler, he hadn't quite reached the same depth that Joey Gallo has found himself to. So I feel like, you know, to use that vibes word again, is this guy more in the Chris Davis neighborhood where he's having so much trouble figuring it out that you have to wonder if he's ever going to figure it out? Or is this somebody that you could say is a reasonable chance of rebounding and being a guy that could make a little bit of an impact? You wouldn't have to play every day. But we're also talking about another left-handed hitter here. And I think one of the big things the Braves need is for their current left-handed hitting left fielder, Eddie Rosario, to become a guy that you know hits down the stretch and helps contribute to this team. I think Gallo is interesting though because he has the track record, right? I mean, we, we, the one thing we knew was Solaire. I mean, he he had had the track record, and you kind of felt like, okay, maybe he's going to end up putting this together. But I just look at the stuff that that Gallo's not doing. I mean, he's hitting under 200 against fastballs, and you go back a couple of years ago, and it, it, despite the fact that he's never been an average guy, I mean, he was flirting with 300 against that pitch just a couple yeah. of years ago. Um, just the whiff rates on everything. So maybe maybe he's just a change of scenery guy. Maybe just that simple fact that you're not feeling the pressure of being in New York and having to, you know, I got to follow Aaron Judge. I got to follow Giancarlo Stanton. Maybe he just needs a different outlook around things. I mean, it's a different place to play. A lot of players, they can thrive in that. A lot of players, they go up there and it takes a while to adjust. And some players, they just stay away from there for the entirety of their career if they can, just because it's just not what they're looking for and not the place that they're looking to play. But whatever the reason is and whatever's gone into it, Joey Gallo has really struggled over the past, what, calendar year since being acquired by the Yankees at the trade deadline last year. So we'll see if he's on the move again. And that's just one of the many, many names we're going to be talking about here on From the Diamond as we continue with a lot of trade talk. We've got all kinds of things to get into. The rumors are flying. There's also plenty of big stories to get into as we go to three up and three down. As we continue right here, this is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, more from the Diamond with Graham McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you. Stephen Gagliano keeping us on the rails here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. From the Kia Studios in Midtown, a good weekend for the Atlanta Braves as they were able to cap off a much-needed sweep. It's not because they haven't been winning series, Corey. It's just because 
They haven't been sweeping series, and they've had a lot of opportunities, too, and I'm sure that they are happy to have one under their belt as Austin Riley delivered the walk-off on Sunday. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about what else is going on across Major League Baseball. We just sized up some potential Braves trade targets, but as we know, with the trade deadline looming on Tuesday, there are a lot of trade targets out there, and thus a lot of trade rumors out there. And one of those rumors became reality, and it was the Seattle Mariners, Corey, pulling the trigger on what I think is the biggest trade domino to fall thus far and sending quite a message to the rest of the American League as they got what I think is the best available starting pitcher that we knew was on the market, the Reds' Luis Castillo in exchange for four prospects. And I don't like to sit around and say, grade this trade immediately afterwards, but the grades for this was both an A for the Mariners and an A for the Reds and the return that they got. And I know it doesn't necessarily set the market per se, but it is one of those things that you like to look at both sides and think, did this seem like both were able to benefit from it? And for Seattle, the bigger focus here is not just the last 20 years in which they haven't been able to make the playoffs, but the fact that they could end that drought this year and they have a team that they feel pretty good about this year and going forward, and Castillo makes them that much better. I mean, they've got one of the AL's best rotations now. You think about Castillo joined with Robbie Ray, you know, the reigning AL Cy Young winner. You've got you know, Logan Gilbert, who has a 2.78 ERA through 21 starts. You know, George Kirby, the rookie, has, you know, has been really, really good. Um, pitched to a 3.5 ERA. Chris Flex and Marco Gonzalez. Those maybe not be high strikeout guys, but they've got some capable back of the rotation kind of arms. What you think about when you factor, you know, when you move into those those postseason series, which obviously the Mariners are angling to get back to the postseason, they are going to be an extremely tough out, not only because of guys like Julio Rodriguez, but now because they have a ridiculously deep starting rotation. Yeah, they do. And Castillo obviously jumps at the front of that rotation. As you mentioned, they spent a bunch of money to get Robbie Ray in there. Now he's pitching a lot more like Robbie Ray, Robbie Ray after a bit of a slow start for him. But I do think he needed some reinforcements there. And this is a guy that could make a big impact. And when you think about lining up your postseason rotation and some of the teams you'll have to go against, this is the kind of arm that you want to be able to call upon in those situations. Now, I don't know that there's any other player out there in Major League Baseball who's going to stir up as many rumors as Juan Soto. I think the question boils down to this. As we know all of the news and all of the, I don't know if you want to call it, turmoil around the All-Star game, when he had to fly commercial and all of those things and what kind of message that that sent. But the bottom line was a $440 million contract offer had been turned down. Reports are that the Nationals are going to make one more offer in hoping to keep him, but that he was not interested in that, what, 14-year pact that the Nationals offered him. So now I think the question becomes, Corey, do they trade him before the deadline on Tuesday, or is Juan Soto still in the Nationals uniform to be traded this winter? I don't think, and I, I'm, I had teetered on this before because I thought, okay, there's not enough time, right? And it's probably going to happen during the winter when maybe they can involve more teams. I don't think they want the first act of new ownership to be trading away a 23-year-old who looks like he's on a Hall of Fame track. I think they don't. They, whoever takes on this this club is not going to want that on their watch. I think it gets done before. I can't believe I'm saying that, but I think you, we're looking at the Cardinals, Dodgers, you know, the Giants, Mariners. I mean, maybe the Mariners can get involved in this as well. I mean, they they obviously you know took a big hit. You know, moving out a you know a trade package there that you know headlined by you know in a shortstop now that is tops of the Reds. Uh, you know, organizational charts there in, in Novelli Marte. Uh, but, man, there's I, the, the Cardinals, to me, are the most interesting team because they've got a lot of guys in their farm system. They've mm-hmm. got some really uh, interesting young guys at the major league level. 
Maybe they're the ones that can pull it off, but I don't know that you can count the Dodgers out of anything, considering we know that how much talent they have uh, yeah. in their farm system as well. I'll throw another NL West team at you with the Padres. I think that they're yeah. a club, and with A.J. Preller out there, he's not afraid to make a big move and, and trade some prospects and make a splash and try to bring in more talent. And, of course, they've started spending some more money with bringing in Manny Machado, the Eric Hosmer deal. While that's not one I would assign, that's certainly a, an indication that the ownership is also behind putting some money into this. Now, can they figure out a way to keep Juan Soto around? after he goes to free agency? I don't know. But they don't have to answer that question at the trade deadline right now either because they could have Juan Soto for this run towards October and then for two more after this. So the control that you have there I think is the biggest thing. Now, we don't know if the Nationals will try to dump off a bad salary on this. I don't think that they will. It sounds like some of the indications were that they weren't just going to use Juan Soto as a vehicle to say get rid of Patrick Corbin's albatross of a contract. Steven Strasburg's not going to go anywhere. He's a 10-5 and guy, so he doesn't have to take a trade and, and go somewhere else unless he really wants to, and I don't think that that's going to be a consideration here. This is a generational talent, though, and I think that's what you really hit on that, if, to me, is the biggest point of this conversation is you know, the Nationals are going to really be sending a, a, a strong message here one way or another. I mean, if they keep Juan Soto around and hope that they can offer him something that entices him to stick around, that's one thing. But the outcome just doesn't seem very likely now based upon everything we've heard and the fact that you know, Scott Boris is typically known for getting the best deal for his clients and doing so through free agency, not through extensions two years away from free agency. So you mentioned the Padres, and I think they're a really interesting option there. But, uh, I mean, I, I mentioned this to you the other day on battery power. They are right there uh, up against it with the collective, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the competitive balance tax. Mm-hmm. They would be a, a two-time offender, so they'd have to pay 30% tax on anything that they would go above that $230 million threshold. Obviously, you're willing to do that to get a Juan Soto, but I think they're going to have to clear space in order to get Juan Soto so they're not in this situation. They're talking to Joe Musgrove about a five-year deal that would guarantee him $100 million. So that how's that going to factor in down the road? I think Mike Clevenger, Blake Snell, they've got to move you know some some money off the books here if you're going to take on Juan Soto for this year and obviously those uh, additional years of control because you know he's going to get paid when it goes to arbitration the next time around. So yeah. I like the Padres in the mix. It's just to me other teams have more space that makes them a little bit more interesting. You know, and I mentioned you know the Padres are not afraid to spend money. It wasn't just Manny Machado, of course. It was extension they signed Fernando Tatis Jr. too. So you talk about the luxury tax. That's another consideration there. Really, the contract, if they wanted to move one that would clear a lot of money, if you could find a taker, would be moving that Hosmer deal. But I don't see that that's going to be something that's going to be incredibly likely here at the trade deadline. And, you know, you have to start thinking about when you make different deals, does it create more questions than answers? And that, I think, is one of the things that some clubs are dealing with. And as we look at the trade deadline, we see some clubs that are very obvious sellers, the teams that are 10, 20 games under 500, teams that are 5 or 10 games out of their division or 5 or 10 games out of the wild card and are not going to be able to get over that pile to get into October. But I'm really curious about another NL West team in the San Francisco Giants. They stumbled out of the All-Star break. They lost eight of their first nine coming out of the break. They've got Carlos Rodon. They've got Jock Peterson. They've got some other pieces that they could look to move if they did decide to sell if ownership gives the green light as far as that's concerned. And the Red Sox are in the same place. They've got a whole bunch of pending free agents. And, you know, these are two clubs that are within shouting distance of the wild card. But is it the smartest thing to try to keep all these players together for something that is far from a given? 
or should you start to try to maybe stockpile some assets? Neither team has to go into a rebuild because of this, but what's the smart play here, and what are they going to do? I'm fascinated by both of these clubs. And I think the Red Sox are just incredibly fascinating because you've got Xander Bogarts, you've got Rafael Devers, uh, J.D. Martinez, Christian Vasquez, Jackie Bradley Jr., Nathan Eovaldi. Uh, a lot of these guys are free agents. But, you know, They've gone out and told Bogarts, apparently, he's not going to be traded. He's in a walk year. J.D. Martinez, Vasquez are in walk years. Bradley has a, an option for next year, mutual option. But Nathan Eovaldi's a free agent. I think he's going to be a really sought-after starting pitcher. I just I just don't understand the point of the Red Sox, who have lost 7 of 9 in the second half. They're tumbling out of the wild card race. The Giants, to me, you know, I just don't see them getting to the postseason. I think there's still a chance when you look at that Red Sox team and how talented they are. Maybe they go on a run. You know, maybe they're in a situation similar to the Braves last year, where they put it together late. Mm-hmm. When you think about you know the, the Nationals. You know, at this point uh, in 2019, were nowhere near you know yep. a contending team. The Braves at this point of last year were nowhere near a contending team. The Red Sox are extremely talented, um, but man, I just I, to me, you you got to decide at this point: Are you going to go out and get additional assets because they don't have Chris Sale? Or do they feel like, you know what, maybe it's time to move on from some of these? They're just in a really weird spot. Unlike the Giants, I mean, Rodon, you know, he's he hit those innings limits. He's got a $22.5 million option for next year. I mean, he could be something that's not that cost prohibitive for a one-year deal if somebody yeah. were to get him up and he picks up that deal. But um, if I'm the Red Sox, I'm, I, I know you're, you got all this. I ultimately think of them I'm selling. I just think you've got to do something to get assets in return. Yeah, and here's my other question about that, and then we'll kind of move on, is that as you do look at the the one year that they have in front of them right now and what it could be, does seeing a team like the Braves make it an even harder decision You know, the very next year to say, all right, well, the Braves didn't look like they were in it. Then they went out and made four or five trades, stood pat, and added to it, and they did go on a run. So you bring up a very interesting point there. Uh, speaking of players that are going to make a big impact in the second half, or at least one they hope that does, the Mets are expected to get Jacob deGrom back on Tuesday. It's been 13 months since he pitched for New York. This is a big deal for the first-place club. Lord knows we've been talking about it a lot here on the show. <laughs> He's made four starts, uh, topping out at four innings, 67 pitches. Uh, Going to be back in the mix on Tuesday. Um, you know, Most recent appearance was at, at AAA Syracuse on Wednesday. He's getting six days before he takes the, the hill in a major league game for the first time. Yeah. Um, he's lined up, and this is the really interesting point, he's then lined up to face the Braves on Sunday in that upcoming five-game series. So they're getting him back at a really key time. But what version of Jacob deGrom are, are you going to see, and how long is it going to take him to get to the point where you feel like he can go deep into a game? Yeah, and how much are you going to want to push him yeah. in the first few starts back? Because even though he has done multiple rehab starts, you mentioned it's not like he's out there throwing five, six innings every time, and it's not like every one of them has been you know, 100% you know, clean in terms of nobody getting a hit off of him, though he is throwing 100 miles an hour. So he certainly has the stuff and those minor league numbers. You can ball him up and throw him in the trash because it really matters what he does when he walks in and takes them out at City Field or anywhere else in a major league ballpark. But when you talk about impact players for the second half, you have to be looking at what Jacob deGrom could mean and will mean to the Mets. He'll either mean a lot to him if he comes back, he's healthy and he produces, or it could be kind of the reverse of that if he comes back, isn't as effective, or he stumbles through another injury, which would be a real shame for the Mets. And the best pitcher in baseball is not on the mound. That's something that I think robs the sport in a lot of different ways. And if I'm the Braves, bring them all. Let's you know beat them at beat them at full strength. I think is something you got to think about in that as well. Now, another story that we saw this past week, one that was especially troubling, and speaking of injuries, was Mike Trout. He was in the news this week as it was reported he has a spinal issue that is currently sidelining him. Now, costovertebral dysfunction is what the issue is called. Trout, though, 
did chime in on social media after this was reported, said, my career is not over. Thank you for your prayers and your concerns. I will be back. I will manage my way through this. But it just seems like the last three or four years, something or some forces have conspired against Mike Trout being on the field, and that has taken a lot of history and and the top player in baseball away from this generation of baseball fans. When you tell me that a guy has an issue where he has an occurrence where the, when the rib meets the vertebrae and can be caused or exasperated by rotating the torso and he plays baseball, I'm really concerned about what that means for the long-term aspects sure. for, for Mike Trout here. Um, I, you know, I hate this for for Mike Trout. I hate this for the Angels. I hate this for, for baseball fans everywhere. Um, not played since July 12th. And this just, to me, just puts a bigger focus on the fact that you got to trade Shohei Otani. You got one more year of club control with him. If you're not going to be able to have, if, I mean, let's say that he, that Mike Trout's, you know, we're going to have to look at a situation where he can't play every day. He can only play a couple days a week, and you can't make him an everyday player anymore. Yeah. What's the point in holding on to, to Otani? I just, I hate this for Trout, but I, I hate this for for bigger picture of what it could mean to the Angels. Yeah, it's an absolutely great question. Rounding things out on our three up and three down was a bit of a fun story, I think. The Nationals, though, I don't think that they're having too much fun either with the Juan Soto business or the fact that, you know, this has been a really bad season for them. But uh, Victor Robles had some fun at the expense of Madison Bumgarner. After a home run in one game of a series, Bumgarner said that the fact that he was celebrating that home run made him a clown. So Robles went out, found a red nose, and showed up in the dugout the next day for the Nationals and kind of I don't know. If, if you want to literally call him a clown, you might as well play into it. And for Robles, I, I think that that was a little bit of fun at the expense of somebody who takes himself awfully seriously on the mound. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I wish Madison Bumgarner would have followed up the question because it was against the Nationals to say that's a clown question, bro. He I think he, he missed a major opportunity. In memory of Bryce Harper and his time there, and I'm sure all the clown questions he's been asked over the years, uh, but not really being asked too many questions these days is Harper because he is not in the lineup for the Philadelphia Phillies. But it'll be interesting to see what all transpires for the trade deadline and the National League East, of course, with the return of Jacob deGrom and so many other things that are coming our way here as we turn the calendar to the month of August. So that'll wrap things up here in the first hour of From the Diamond. We hope you've enjoyed yourself as much as we have enjoyed it. We'll be talking about all the races across both the American and the National League as we come back and take our trip around the big leagues. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Take a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. This is From the Diamond. We embark on hour number two. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on a Sunday evening. Thanks for joining us. If you like what you hear or just are looking for more of it, you can find From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast, so make sure that you are subscribed there and make sure you're following along. I'm at Grant McCauley on Twitter. Corey is at Corey J. McCartney. The show is at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. Time to take a look around the big leagues, and we'll start first in the American League, where the Yankees could not help the Braves out in their Subway Series. I can't tell you how disappointed I was with that. Corey, you thought maybe the Mets were going to run into a bit of a buzzsaw. Instead, it was the Mets who took two games against the Yankees head-to-head. But as we did talk about, the Yankees have already made a move. They traded for Andrew Benintendi, and they're looking to, I'm sure, make some more moves in advance of the deadline. We talked about Joey Gallo earlier. It could be his swan song in New York and what has been kind of a forgettable uh, stanza overall in his career. 
What do you see the Yankees doing in advance of the deadline? They need another starter, right? I mean, I think Frankie Montas is that going to be that number one guy for them. Luis Castillo's off the board, having gone to the Mariners. So I, I think they make a move there. Um, I really like the Benintendi deal for them. He, obviously, this is a guy having the best season of his career. But think about what this means for their outfield. Now, putting him alongside Aaron Judge and Aaron, uh, Aaron Judge and Aaron Hicks, and obviously, as we talked about, more importantly, it means you don't have to play Joey Gallo. So I think that's going to be interesting to see how they follow up on that and where he goes next. But um, the Yankees have less holes now that they brought in Andrew Benatendi. Yeah, and I think addition by subtraction may be part of the equation here for Joey Gallo at this point. But you knew that the Yankees were not just going to stand pat, and you felt like you know something was going to happen pretty soon. And then Giancarlo Stanton ends up on the injured list right after the All-Star game. That was obviously something they were hoping to avoid throughout the course of the season. You keep Judge healthy, you keep Stanton healthy. You build around those two, you know, titans in the middle of your lineup. But Benintendi has really been able to get his career back on track after kind of teetering and really falling off the wagon with the Boston Red Sox, getting dumped over to Kansas City and being able to play his way back into a very useful player and now finds himself on the other side of that rivalry that he should know pretty well from the Boston side. (laughs) Now, we did talk a lot about the Red Sox earlier and and the decisions that they have to make with whether it be Nathan Uvalde or J.D. Martinez or others who are staring at free agency. I know that the Mets have been rumored to be one of the clubs that could be interested in both J.D. Martinez and Christian Vasquez. And I would say for New York, adding thumb to their lineup and getting help behind the plate are two big boxes they want to check in advance of the trade deadline. And you could conceivably get them for cheaper than you would be getting Wilson Contreras. And yeah, if you're also looking to bring in, uh, you know, David uh, Robertson as well from the, uh, from the, the Cubs. But yeah, I think, I mean, they're certainly in an interesting position there. And uh, you know, I, I mean, this, this division has some, some teams that have faced those same mm-hmm. questions because what are the Orioles going to do? Are they going to check? I mean, Trey Mancini is yeah. a guy that can is a free agent. They've got you know Anthony Santander who has two years of club control. Cl- uh, closer Jorge Lopez. I mean, that's a team a guy that a lot of teams would really like to get their hands on, but um, they're above five hundred. And, and so, what do they do when a fan base has been waiting to get back to the the island of relevancy? What are you going to do that now that you kind of reach that? Yeah, and this is something that you couldn't have really foreseen because the Orioles were not really expected to be a team that was flirting with five hundred as you turn the calendar to the month of August. And now you hope that, and I'm sure Major League Baseball hopes, I'm sure the Players Association to some extent is hoping that, hey, we get clubs more enticed to spend and try to win. That's the point of expanding out the playoffs. Major League Baseball wanted it very badly. The Players Association, I think, was going to go along to get along if it meant getting some other things done. And, And obviously a lot of this was talked about during the lockout. But this is going to be interesting to watch how these clubs decide to navigate the trade deadline and how many of their pieces that they might move in advance of that deadline, if in fact they believe that they're a winner or have to make the difficult call that, hey, you know, this year has been fun and maybe in the case of the Orioles to this point, but this is as far as it can go and we've got to cash in some of these pieces. And that's an ownership group that I have little to no faith in making the right decision. So we'll see how that whole thing plays out. Uh, meanwhile, the Tampa Bay Rays made a preemptive move ahead of the trade deadline as they picked up David Peralta, the outfielder slash DH, I would assume now, Uh, From the Arizona Diamondbacks, we saw him on Friday, and then he was traded away uh, before Saturday's game. That's a good move by the Rays, and every time they go out and pick somebody up, you have to imagine they've seen something that's going to be useful for their ball team, and they don't miss. They're down Wander Franco still. uh, Harold Ramirez is still out. Um, They're looking at a a late August to early September return from uh, Wander Franco with that Hammett bone fracture. Uh, Ramirez has a right thumb issue, and his date of return is to be determined. So they needed to go out and get something because the offense just hasn't been performing uh, for them. So I I like this move for them. They've kind of slipped down. They've gone into that third wild card spot. Um, They lost a series to the Royals. They lost a series uh, to 
the mm-hmm. the Orioles as well. They need a spark, and you're going to get it with Franco, but you've got to have something in the meantime. I really like this. Uh, Peralta has been a guy who I think a lot of people have wondered the last two, three years if he was going to be on the move. Uh, finally did it, and I think he landed in a good spot in Tampa. He did, and I do think they need the help offensively speaking. They have a guy who I think could be the American League Cy Young Award winner in Shane McClanahan. I mean, depending on how he pitches the next couple of months, that is going to be decided. Meanwhile, as you look around in that division and you think about clubs that have their eyes on October, you have to be looking up to Toronto because the Blue Jays have been able to you know, put together a pretty good season thus far, but I think it hasn't been without its flaws. It hasn't been without its injuries. I think they could use another starting pitcher, just in my opinion, and I think that they should be busy prior to the trade deadline. Where do you land on the Blue Jays and what they need? So they reportedly are after the Tigers' Michael Fulmer, um, who's another one of their guys who's headed towards free agency. Their bullpen's been solid. They've been had some inconsistency behind uh, all-star closer Jordan uh, Romano. But you look at their starting pitching. Ross Stripling has been so big for them because you've got Alex Manoa, Kevin Gaussman, Jose Barrios. Barrios has been much improved these last few starts. But they could use some depth. I just don't see yeah. them going out and making that big, crazy pitching addition because Stripling has been so big uh, pitching to a 3-1-6 ERA. So I think they're very similar situation to the Braves where I think you could see them go out and get that maybe that veteran guy who you know, is going to be an innings eater for you, uh, you know, later in the season. But um, I don't think they have to make a splash, but I do think they could use some pitching help. Yeah, they could. The Twins, the Guardians, and the White Sox are now in what I would like to call a three-way dance for the American League Central. The Twins have been holding on to it for much of the season Uh, They did, I think, dodge an injury bullet with Byron Buxton, if I'm not mistaken, although that seems like something that, you know, wait a few days, that could change just because of the nature of what his career has been. But uh, overall, I think the Twins are a club that should be out there doing some buying. If they're looking to add to their mix, what are the Twins going to be looking for at the trade deadline? And if that is the case, then the Guardians are pretty loaded with prospects. They could make a big move. They could take on some money. They could answer any move that the Twins make from where I'm sitting. So the Twins are said to be pretty aggressive on the on the, the starting pitching market. Um, they've reportedly been going after Tyler Malley from the Reds, the, the Marlins, Pablo Lopez, who have the Marlins do not get rid of that guy. Um, they've yeah. been in the mix for Carlos Rodon. There are nine, they're 19th right now in rotation war, just ahead of the Reds. They have This is obviously an area of need for them, but I will couch that by saying, Kenta Maeda may be back in September. So maybe mm-hmm. you don't have to be as aggressive knowing that you've got that guy that's, that could potentially be on his way back from Tommy John. I don't know that you're going to get the amount of time from him. Yeah. You, you're, you know, but if he's back, that that is is obviously you know something to help them out. But you mentioned the Guardians. There's been talk that they've you know potentially shopping some of their uh, control over starters, guys like Zach Plezak, you know, Aaron Ciavalli. Um, Shane Bieber, it's, it, you know, the, the rumors are it would take a, an exorbitant package to get uh, him in return. But think about the fact that they've moved Corey Kluber, Trevor Bauer, Mike Clevenger, Carlos Carrasco in the past three calendar years, and they still have a 405 rotation ERA yep. right now. I mean, I, I mean, they've found ways. I don't. I guess I just don't understand from that perspective. Why would you want to move those controllable guys? Maybe you're just trying to make that splash addition to that rotation, but I just don't know if the Guardians need to do that as a most as much as maybe they just need to go out and get a little bit more offense. And I don't know that there's necessarily anybody out there that you'd want to take those controllable arms and turn them into at this point if Luis Castillo's already been traded. I mean, I like Tyler Malley. I think he could make another club better. He could make another rotation look better. But is that a trade that you want to do? Any version of a two-for-one for if you're the Guardians? I'm sure the Reds would sign up for that, but I'm not sure that the Guardians would do that. Now, the White Sox have been a team that's been beset by injuries. I think that they've you know, kind of run up against the, the time curve as far as the management is concerned at times as well, but they have found their way back to 500. They have not been buried in this division. 
but they have two teams in front of them they're going to try to get over, and then they've got the whole American League East in front of them when it comes to the wild card. So if the White Sox are going to do anything, it would seem like getting stronger before Tuesday's trade deadline would be a pretty important step. And they are reportedly eyeing, eyeing David Robertson and Michael Givens from the Cubs, and I know it's trading a guy across the city of Chicago. You know, We haven't seen that happen a lot, but remember last year we saw that happen with Craig Kimbrell, yeah. you know, Ryan Tapura going up from the north side to the south side. So maybe they get a little bit better in that, in that department. We know that the, the, the main focus for this team was just getting healthy. So you know, maybe the fact that they could add some smaller you know, bullpen help is going to ultimately help you know, to get guys like Lance Lynn a little bit more backing there. But um, they're on a charge, and we knew ultimately it was going to happen with this team. But I, to me, I, just, I put them third in this pecking order when you talk about this three-team dance. I, to me, I just think the Twins are the best team. Yeah. I think the Guardians have a better you know, better lineup. Uh, maybe the White Sox put something together here, but they, they do need some bullpen help. It just felt like this was the White Sox year in, in a lot of ways, just based on the talent that they had. And again, the game is not paid on, or played on paper, so that does not necessarily – it doesn't win you anything, actually. I mean, no matter how many magazines printed or no matter how many tweets are sent out about it, no matter how many um, different preseason rankings are posted, you have to go out and play the games, and the White Sox have found it to be quite challenging here in 2022. Let's look out west. The Astros looking to win that division yet again. The Mariners, though, aiming just to get to October. They haven't been there since 2001, and that was quite a special year for a club in terms of winning a bunch of games in the regular season, but not going deep into October. Uh, They've already made the big move for them getting Luis Castillo, but they just lost Julio Rodriguez. He got hit on the wrist. He He has landed on the injured list this week. Hopefully he's not down for a long time, but do you see the Mariners making more moves before this deadline? It sounded like Jerry Depoto, who's been known to make trades, didn't feel like that they've emptied out their farm by a long shot. I could still, and we talk about bullpen arms, I could still see them going out and getting a little bit better in that department. And we talked about how fantastic their uh, rotation is going to look. That offense has got guys that they just needed to pick up, and that's obviously happened You know, along guys who have, have were underperforming with what uh, Rodriguez was doing. But I don't necessarily see them doing something, but I, I think the Astros are going to be a really interesting team to watch because they've got six viable starters in their Major League roster. When you think about Verlander, Valdez, Garcia, Javi, or Odorizzi, Urquidy, and they've got Lance McCullers, who's on a rehab assignment now. Yeah. So, I mean, they're in a weird position where if they're going to go out and get help, they could be delivering from a position of strength to go out and get that offensive help that they need. Because we've talked about this before, Yuli Guriel has been pretty bad this year. I think they could be a team, if you're earmarking where Josh Bell winds up, mm-hmm. I think Houston could easily be his destination. Yeah, and when you do think about these trades, we talked a lot about what prospect lists mean a little bit earlier and how every club looks at prospects a little bit differently depending on their scouting and, of course, their needs and where they project certain guys and how long they've been watching them perhaps. But, you know, there is something to be said for having major league ready pieces to be able to move, guys who have – you know, two or three years of control remaining. And some of those starters that you mentioned for the Astros, they do fit that bill. And some other clubs might be interested in taking one of those starters along with another prospect, not necessarily one of the top 20 or 30 prospects in all of baseball, but putting it together in a package deal that would make sense. And I think they could use the offensive help. I mean, you knew it was going to be different without Carlos Correa this year. Alex Bregman is not that guy that he was a few years ago either. So, uh, overall, I mean, Jordan Alvarez has really been 
the guy carrying things for Houston. I think Kyle Tucker can do a lot as well, but this is a different Astros club. I mean, they're winning, so it's hard to argue with it, but there are ways for them to get better. So your has got three years of club control. The Cardinals and Astros have uh, reportedly discussed the possibility of a trade with Jake Odorizzi. So, I mean, you, we mentioned that that's potentially seven starting pitchers for the Astros, so maybe they feel like they can move a couple of these guys and get some pieces that they need to get a little bit better offensively, but... Um, man, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that a team is that's that good has that much starting pitching to play around with. Yeah, and we could sit around here for another couple of hours talking about all the possibilities yep. of different teams and different players that would fit, and all of it's going to play itself out to a crescendo by Tuesday at 6 p.m. That's when the trade deadline is. But as we sit right here on Sunday night, as we know in the East, as the Yankees holding it down, as we know in the Central, the Twins have the slight advantage, and out West, the Astros handily over the Mariners, who've already made a big splash on the trade deadline. Looking quickly at the wild card, though, Blue Jays are holding that top spot. We talked about what they might need to make their club a little bit better. The Mariners, I don't think they're done dealing yet. I don't think you go make the Luis Castillo trade just to stand pat at that point. And they've got a general manager that if he hasn't made a trade in about 24 or 48 hours, you may want to check in and make sure he's okay. Uh, then you got the Rays holding down the third wild card. Then it's Cleveland, Baltimore, the Chicago White Sox, and the Boston Red Sox all within four but I still think the Red Sox decision is going to really tip the balance of power, maybe in a couple of other divisional races, if they decide to unload three, four, or five of their pending free agents. That could be something pretty fascinating to look for. That's what's going on in the American League. As we continue here on from the Diamond, we'll take a look over at what's happening in the National League. We'll size things up with the Braves and the Mets set for their big showdown this coming week. What's going to be going on there? What are those two clubs going to look like when they meet a little bit later this week? We'll get into all of it. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We continue on From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios. This is Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Thanks for making us part of your Sunday. We continue our trip around the big leagues and talk about the trade deadline to come. That is Tuesday at 6 p.m., so we are really closing in on that. We're, what, less than 48 hours away at this point. Let's start in the National League East. We've talked a lot about this throughout the show, but, of course, it's of the most interest to those of us listening out here in Atlanta. The Braves and Mets lined up, Corey, for this big showdown this coming week. There's five games at City Field. We know the return of Jacob deGrom as part of this weekend. New York has a three-game lead heading into the week. Atlanta has a couple of games against the Phillies before all of that gets started. This is a critical week for the Braves, and I think that all three of these clubs I just mentioned, the Braves and Mets, plus the Phillies, could look very different by the time we get to Tuesday at 6.01 p.m., or let's call it sometime after 6 p.m. on Tuesday. I feel like the Mets aren't done, right? I mean, I know that they, they made the deal with the Reds to get Tyler Naquin uh, in a reliever Phillip deal. Uh, I just feel like they're not done yet. I mean, you look at what the makeup of this team now. I mean, they got one of the best outfields in baseball with Mark Canna, Brandon Nimmo, and Starling Marte, and Naquin's going to complement that. Um, they can obviously use him with Daniel Vogelbach, who they went out and got from the Pirates, but yeah. it feels like there's still one more move uh, left for the Mets, and I'm just trying to think, like, where else can this team get any better? Could they still get one more guy that could be that DH bat for them and, and maybe Vogelbach moves into a little bit more of a bench role? Could they be in the mix for Josh Bell? But would the Nationals be willing to move him in division? I just I, Something tells me that the Mets just aren't finished. What are the Mets going to be willing to part with as well? Because, I mean, this is the interesting place that you get into when you're a club that your next step is to win. Your next step is to win the division, go to October, however you want to put it down. But typically clubs would like to win their division. The Mets are in line to do that. They went out and spent a lot of money on some key free agents in the offseason. There is no 
real indication that Steve Cohen is going to stop spending a lot of money on this club anytime soon. In fact, it apparently scared people so badly during the lockout that they wanted to make provisions that would stop this guy from spending more and more money, which is, of course, exactly what the Players Union wants to hear and think about. Uh, Be that as it may, yeah, this is a club that does, I think, need a DH. I think that'd be the one really logical place for it. And we talked about the Red Sox earlier. The fact that J.D. Martinez is available, that would fit... I think what New York is looking for, if they can also get Christian Vasquez to help them behind the plate, because they've also made some small deals to make some uh, to get some help catching. They've got James McCann on a rehab assignment. He could be back soon, but they have gotten, I believe, the worst production of any position in all of Major League Baseball is the Mets catchers. So when you think about any offensive jolt that you can get or somebody can stabilize it, Vasquez will be a big help to them. So, but what deal if you're? Let's say you're Steve Cohen, and, and I will gladly ask you for some money when we go off air. Uh, would you rather make the deal with the Red Sox for JD Martinez and Vasquez, or do you rather get David Robertson along with Wilson Contreras from the Cubs? Well, it's going to depend on the price, and I think that you hit on something earlier that the Red Sox, with those pending free agents who aren't necessarily, you know, at at the level to which I think a William or Wilson Contreras rather is going to be a hot commodity for a number of different clubs. So maybe you let some other club, and it could be the Padres, that goes out and says, hey, we got to have this catcher. This is what we're going to go for, and they've got a stocked farm, and they go ahead and get him. And sometimes deals happen, players go off the board, you got to pivot. So there are some at least some options if you're looking for those catchers. But if I had to pick one of the two deals if I'm the Mets, it would probably be Vasquez and Martinez if that was what the availability was. Then maybe go out and try to get another bullpen arm as most – I think contenders are going to be looking to do. Yeah, and I, it's interesting too when you think about bringing in a new catcher into a situation like that. I mean, there's there's really not any guys on that Mets team that have experience with either one of them. So, no. like, how different is it going to be for one of those guys walking in? That's why it's almost like okay, if James McCann's on a rehab assignment, do you have to go out and be as aggressive to get that top of the line yeah. Wilson Contreras kind of catcher when you could have you know? Vasquez and potentially team him with McCann, but then get a better option in terms of a bat with the J.D. Martinez. Yeah, th- that's a, a lot of the reasons why I think that would be a deal that would make a lot of sense for them. But what they will do, though, we will find out, as will everybody, by Tuesday at 6.01 p.m. Eastern time, or a little bit after that in the case of some deals that take a little bit longer to filter through. But that's when they have to be agreed upon is by 6 p.m. on Tuesday. We know the Braves were super busy last year. We've talked about some of the targets that they could look into this year. I know that you and I have both talked about Brandon Drury. He's a former Braves farmhand. He was traded away a decade ago in the Justin Upton trade, and now he could be on his way back, perhaps, if he's a fit and a deal can be had, and the Braves are, in fact, interested, as has been reported, in adding this infielder, this versatile player, to their bench, or being able to put him into the mix, I should say, overall, he could really add some power to a situation where the Braves haven't had some. Yeah, and I like Brandon Drury. I mean, this is a guy making just $900,000 this year. The offensive numbers, when you think about Ian Happ, he's kind of been like Ian Happ light, although the offensive numbers have actually been better than Ian Happ. He's a 2-4 uh, Fangraph war player. He's hit 32% above league average. He has 19 homers, but 11 of those have come in Cincinnati, yeah. where he has 26 of his 41 extra base hits. So how much are you buying into this with the, knowing the offensive production is probably not going to be it's uh, the same at your park, it is the band box that is a great American ballpark. But he has a lot of versatility. Not mm-hmm. only, largely, he's played in the out in the in the infield, but he can play in the outfield if you need him to. So he's a guy who can bring some versatility. Yeah, and I do think that the Braves could use somebody in advance of Ozzy Albies getting back. At some point, you hope either later in August or by early September, you want to have Ozzy Albies back. But in the in the interim, you know Robinson Cano's days would appear to be numbered just based on the production and the fact that. 
The last couple of days, the Braves have faced a right-handed starter, and they have started Orlando Arcia ahead of Robinson Cano, who has not collected a hit in the last couple of weeks. So that is something just to keep an eye on in advance of the deadline. You take a flyer on a guy, it doesn't necessarily work, but it doesn't mean he's going to be able to stick around for the final couple of months of the season, especially if you're going to have moving parts on your roster with the trade deadline going. Uh, Looking elsewhere in the National League, of course, we did mention the Phillies. I think they could use some serious help, just offensively speaking, but you know, they do keep on keeping on. They need Nick Castellanos to do something. I mean, he's <laughs> something besides argue with reporters would probably be nice production wise. But Alec Bohm has been a resurgent player at third base for them. Reese Hoskins has been good. Kyle Schwarber's leading the National League in home runs. But man, you got to feel like they're missing Bryce Harper right about now. Oh, without question. And I, I wonder, though, do, do they could, would they be better off trying to strengthen that rotation, one that's been a top three, you know, rotation uh, across the season at this point? They've been reportedly in the mix for Tyler Malley, Noah Syndergaard. Pirates Jose Quintana, who I think is going to be one of the more interesting names on the market for any yeah. team because he's a guy that's having a bounce back season and is extremely cheap. Um, you know, he's only making six hundred and seventy five thousand dollars for the rest of the season. He's got a bit of a shaky track record. He hasn't been this good in about six years, but uh, I think that's why you can end up getting him from the Pirates for for not a lot of return. But um, yeah, the, I think the Phillies are going to be an active team. And, unfortunately, an active team may be the Marlins, who I think are going to have to unload some pieces that maybe they don't want to. They just have so many guys on the I.L. right now. It's, yeah. it's I mean, they could field a really good team with the dudes who are in the I.L. for them right yeah, now. Yeah, they definitely could. I mean, we haven't even talked about Sixto Sanchez this year at all because we haven't seen him at all this year. And then one of their top arms, and Max Meyer, is going to require Tommy John surgery as he got hurt this past week. And that's just kind of a gut punch for a club that – Outside of going 12-1 and against the Nationals, has really not been able to beat up on anybody else. They went 7-19 and in May, and that kind of sunk their season, I felt like, as well. Just having a month that bad that early got them down with the Mets kind of running away with things, with the wild card being what it is, and with the Braves finding their footing by the start of June. It just kind of seemed like things happened very quickly for the Marlins, and the momentum was not going in the right way for them because I thought – That rotation had a chance to be special. Sandy Alcantara has been special this year, no question. Pablo Lopez has been good after that, though. Injuries and inconsistency has been the story for the Miami Marlins, but they could look to move a Pablo Lopez, and I would imagine if they wanted to cash in, if you look at what Luis Castillo was able to garner for uh, the Cincinnati Reds, perhaps that's a a route that you might think about going. Uh, Outside of the National League East, over in the Central, the Brewers holding on to first place as the Cardinals are rumored to be in the mix for Juan Soto, among other big names. The Cardinals, they've got the goods. They've got the players that they would need to make that thing happen. And they also have, I think, they have one of the most dedicated fan bases you're going to find. They're a team that I think can print money most years. When are they going to throw some of that money into the heat of a pennant race? And would it be this year? And will it be Juan Soto? I, you know, I think they just need that that last little offensive piece. And you think about putting him with Paul Goldschmidt, who's you know, very much in the conversation for yeah. NL MVP, a lot of people's front runner right now. Nolan Arenado. I mean, you get a 23 year old Juan Soto and put him into that mix with them. I mean, it's going to be obviously the, the cost is going to be exorbitant, right? I mean, they're probably going to have to move from local product Jordan Walker, uh, you know, their third baseman. Maybe they have to move a, a guy who's you know playing at the major league level and a Dylan Carlson. Um, they're, they're, they have a lot of uh, depth in their farm system right now. A lot of young guys at the major league level. They're going to have to deep in, uh, dip into that big time. But I just think they need more than that as well. I mean, their their rotation really needs an upgrade. It's been a mess. Um, they've tried to offset injuries to Jack Flaherty. Steve 
Steven Matz, Alex Reyes, Dakota Hudson, who even when he has played has struggled this year. So they have more needs than Juan Soto. But if you throw him into that mix and you got an offense that you feel like is going to be a bear for anyone to deal with, uh, that could be a really, really good move for the Cardinals. And they do have the young players. And you mentioned those major league ready pieces that some clubs, including the Nationals, are reportedly looking for when they trade Juan Soto. They don't just want to trade him for a whole bunch of you know lottery tickets and 18 and 19 year old prospects. I mean, even if you said, hey, here's six or seven prospects, which it might take, I don't know. But you'd rather have the, I think, quality than just the quantity. I mean, clearly you'd love both, but you know, it could be interesting to see what this deal is going to be. And if, in fact, Juan Soto does get traded before the deadline, I still think he, he does, to go back to our earlier conversation. I do think he moves before this deadline. Otani, that's a whole different question, and that's one we haven't really gotten into on this show. We spent so much time on it last week, but that could be another difference maker if, in fact, he is on the move and the Angels decide that it's time to go ahead and see what they can get for what is, I think, the most exciting player in baseball based on the fact that he does things that you know no one player is really able to do. But that is another story for another time or perhaps for Tuesday by the trade deadline at 6 p.m. <laughs> yeah. We'll find out. Uh, looking out west, I think that the uh, Padres have been a big favorite in this Juan Soto uh, conversation as well, and that it might not help them catch the Dodgers, but with the return of Fernando Tatis Jr. and with some other potential trades they could make, it could make the Padres a pretty tough customer by the time the playoffs roll around. Could you imagine that if they can put Juan Soto and Fernando Tatis Jr. together? I mean, it'd be... I, I know there's some. There, there's been some outlets that have reported executives are saying that they are the favorites for, for Soto. Again, I go back to the competitive, the competitive balance tax yeah. issues that they potentially are going to have by bringing on that salary. But think about it from this end. They could also keep them away from the Dodgers, and that may be the, the biggest positive for them. the best move they you can know, make. Would you be willing to pay that 30% penalty that you'll have for every dollar that you are over the CBT tax by knowing you're stopping him from playing for a Dodger? What's that worth? to Padres' ownership to stop him from being a Dodger. Well, let me ask you this, and and we've seen these happen at times, and it'd take a lot of creativity, but what if there was a three-team trade scenario that goes on where the Nationals and Padres are trying to figure that whole thing out? They get some other club that is you know, interested in receiving maybe another young player and willing to and has the flexibility to take on a little bit of a contract. Maybe you even get another club that's interested in one of those starting pitchers that you mentioned earlier the, with – Mackenzie Gore hurt. I don't know how the Padres can deal from that depth at the moment, but maybe he's not going to be out long, but maybe he's not a great answer to any of these questions. I don't know. <laughs> it could be interesting oh. to see if a three-way trade ends up being the way that, it, that facilitates somebody like Juan Soto being on the move instead of just a straight two-team trade. And it's, but it, I guess you got to look at it from the perspective, though. If you're that third team, what, are you, what, what monster are you creating? Like what? What are you? What are if you're giving them Juan Soto to pair along with Fernando Tatis Jr. when he comes back, and you're doing it for years to come? You better be getting in if you're doing this for one of these. This better be some controllable pieces that you're absolutely getting back. It would have to be enticing enough to get another club involved in that, and maybe it is a club that's not necessarily a contender that's not concerned about what monster is going to eat what monster (laughs) and who has dragons by the time we get to the end of the season and nothing makes sense anymore at the end of the show, but. I'm just fascinated to see how complicated a Juan Soto trade could truly be. I can tell you this. Uh, the third team between the Padres and the Nationals in a Juan Soto trade won't be the Dodgers. I have a pretty good feeling about that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, with that, we will uh, put a bow on the Juan Soto trade saga talk for right now. As far as the NL wild card is concerned, the Braves are kind of running away with that right now. they got the fifth-best record in all of baseball. They've got a seven-game lead in the wild card. Padres game and a half up for that second wild card. Then the Phillies, as of uh, the time we sat down to record this show, 
have been sitting in the third wild card spot with the Cardinals half a game behind them. So there's a lot to still be determined here. Teams can take over a division. Other teams could drop back into this wild card. We'll see how it all plays out. But I would imagine that a lot of the clubs that we've talked about, if not every single one of them, is going to be looking for a way to get that much better or to shore up a need by the time that we talk this time next week. The Giants almost based, giving up at four and a half out of a wild card, saying all of our veterans are you know potentially available is a really weird stance. I know it's a tough, tough, tough division, yeah. but if you're saying Jock Peterson you know, and Wilson and, and Flores and all these guys are potentially available, I mean, that's a weird signal to be saying. I know they've got a lot of guys who are going to be free agents after this year, and you know they've got Brandon Crawford, Belt. They've got. I just think it's a weird situation that they're in right now. But obviously, they're playing in an absolute gauntlet out west. Yeah, I don't necessarily see their kind of their heritage players, their lineage players like a Belt or Brandon Crawford being dealt away. But if you can get a lot for Rodon, and he has an option to go into free agency as it is, you might owe it to yourself, Jock Peterson. That's not really cost them anything if they're able to get something back there. I think they kind of owe it to themselves again to look into it and see what they can do. But we'll find out what will be happening here in the next 48 hours leading up to the trade deadline as we sit here on a Sunday night talking about what's going on across the National League. That'll wrap us up for that. When we come back, we will discuss what is going on for the Atlanta Braves in the week to come. And the answer is a showdown with the New York Mets. We'll get you set for that as we continue. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. This is From the Diamond, Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you. We've caught you up on what's going on all across Major League Baseball. We now bring our focus back to what's going on for the Atlanta Braves. They finished off their three-game sweep of the Arizona Diamondbacks, a sweep that was a long time coming because they'd had several opportunities throughout the month of July. They finished off some of these things, and for whatever reason, they had to settle. I'm using air quotes. Settle for a series win, but uh, they have exercised that demon, Corey. Austin Riley, just you know, to go back to things that are going right for the Braves, his month of July is just one of those things that you just don't see a player do too terribly often. I know you saw another stat that had popped up on Austin Riley. We already talked about the fact that he has the most extra base hits in a single calendar month in Braves franchise history, he bested that 1961 record set by Hank Aaron. You haven't seen it happen in six decades. I'd say you're doing something right. And he's also been making some other Hall of Fame and a very quality company in his month of July. Yeah, he had 44 hits this month, 26 of them going for extra base hits, which is a 59.1% uh, rate for those uh, who don't want to break out a calculator. In the modern era, the only NL player with as many hits in a higher percentage of extra base hits in a month was the Cardinals' Chick Hafey in July of 1928. He had a 59.2% uh, rate that month. So, I mean, it's yeah. uh, it's... When you say the best month ever for, I mean, it's it's not hyperbole. I mean, I think you can you can look at this and say this: we have never seen a Braves player put together a month like this. And if he is not National League Player of the Month, I think Atlanta collectively needs to get you know pitchforks, those flaming like when they would you know go for Frankenstein's castle and all that. Yeah, yeah, make it happen. Well, Austin Riley, this is from the uh, Braves postgame notes, with a 1344 OPS for the month of July. That is, surprisingly, the second-highest mark ever turned in by a Braves player with at least 90 plate appearances. His company, though, was the 1470 OPS posted by Chipper Jones in the July of his 1999 MVP season. So we're talking about Hank Aaron. We're talking about Chipper Jones. Chick Hafey, if you're curious, is also in the Hall of Fame if you're scoring at home. 
And then, of course, you rattled off a list that included Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, and several other all-time greats. That's the kind of month, the kind of numbers that have been put up by Austin Riley. But it's not just about Austin Riley coming up this week, though he is a feature player, quite obviously, for the Braves. I think the front runner for National League Player of the Month and making a strong case towards being the National League's MVP. But the Braves have a quick two-game series against the Philadelphia Phillies after the off day on Monday. And, of course, we know on Tuesday, as that series begins, the trade deadline will be happening right before things get started up there in Philadelphia. It's going to be Spencer Strider and Charlie Morton lined up to start those two games in Philly. We'll get to the Mets series after that because it's five games in four days, including a Saturday doubleheader. But, Corey, first things first, and I think the Braves do a great job of this. It's not looking ahead of where they are. And next up, it's the Phillies, not the Mets. Yeah, and they, I mean, some of some nice matchups in this too. You're going to get Zach Wheeler in that second game of this set. Uh, Nick Nelson's going to get the start for the uh, the Phillies in that first uh, the, in that first game. Um, makes for an interesting matchup here because they've had some success against Zach Wheeler already this season. So uh, a little over a 740 uh, OPS against him this year in a couple starts. So I think they have an opportunity here to to build off this momentum and set up for I mean, a massive weekend here as they play. Five games against the Mets. It should be quite exciting. And if you are scoring at home, and we are going to look ahead on this uh, on the series that follows the Philadelphia set of two games, um, it is going to be fascinating to see on Sunday, based on the fact that Spencer Strider is starting on Tuesday and that Jacob deGrom is starting on Tuesday against the Washington Nationals, this is a potential matchup for Sunday, Corey, that has some major strikeout implications. Yeah, I mean, the, the radar guns are going to get worked on Sunday with uh, with Spencer Strider and Jacob deGrom. It'd be interesting to see just how deep into this game Jacob deGrom goes. He's going to get his first start back uh, in 2022 on Tuesday. So how deep do they let him go into that game? Uh, again, I think the Mets are going to get better uh, in terms of their bullpen. So maybe, you know, he goes into the fifth. Who knows if, how you know long they let him go into that game. But um, certainly from a, you know, a matchup standpoint, this is going to feel, I think, for Spencer Strider, like the biggest start of his career going against a guy that a lot of people think might be the best pitcher of this generation. Yeah, I mean, he's got a strong argument for it. I think that you know Jacob deGrom is a guy that, you know, much like Clayton Kershaw and Justin Verlander and maybe very few others, you could say if he stopped pitching tomorrow, he's in the Hall of Fame, and there's really just not a lot of question about that. But Jacob deGrom is hoping to pitch for quite a few more years before being enshrined in Cooperstown, and that, of course, is waiting on Sunday. So it's going to be a Tuesday night matchup between the Braves and the Phillies as Spencer Strider and Nick Nelson will toe the slab. Then you get Charlie Morton and Zach Wheeler at 12.20 p.m. on Wednesday. The Braves don't get the Thursday off day. That's when they dive into that Mets series. And it starts an 11-game road trip as well, Corey. So when you talk about you know, really having just a, a pivotal time in the season. The trade deadline's coming down. You've got this five-game series against the Mets. you got an 11-game road trip, and the Braves have had the best record in baseball since June the 1st. There's an awful lot to unpack here in what could be ahead of us in this next couple of weeks in terms of charting the course for the remainder of this National League's race between the Braves and the Mets. Yeah, and there's not a lot of let-up. I mean, you're going to go to Boston for a couple games. Uh, obviously, we talked about Boston. What are they going to even look like come August 2nd? How many of those veterans are they going to unleash? Uh, are they going to you know, believe that they still have enough to make a run? A little bit of a let-up there, maybe if you want to call it that, with the, the Marlins for four games, but we know the Braves haven't had the easiest times of them. Then you got to face the Mets again, and then you get the Astros. I mean, there's literally, this, this month is going to be a really tough one for the Braves. It's a, a gauntlet of a schedule, uh, and you're going to see you know, the Mets you know, nine times uh, within the, the month here in the first couple of weeks of August. So this is, a, this is going to be a really telling uh, stretch here for the National League East. It is August the 4th through August the 7th, so you get these single games on the 4th and 5th, the doubleheader on Saturday, 
Saturday the 6th, the finale on Sunday afternoon, August the 7th, as far as Braves and Mets are concerned. Two-day stop at Fenway on the 9th and the 10th. And then you have an off day, but it continues down in Miami where you have a Friday night matchup, a Saturday doubleheader, and then you play again on Sunday, no day off, and then you come home and host the Mets for four games. So as you mentioned, I mean, and not to sell them short, but the Houston Astros, as you said, do come in after that. So if you were looking for like the postscript of this whole thing, this is going to be the three weeks that really test the Atlanta Braves in ways that they have not been tested thus far on their schedule, I don't think, but in ways that... I think the Braves are uniquely qualified for because of the way that they approach series by series, game by game. I mean, this is a club that's been through it. They've been to the top of the mountain, you know, to quote the man, and they are in the spot where they control their own destiny. And that's the one thing that every club wants to be able to say this time of year is it's all out in front of us. We have to be able to go get it. You don't want to be staring up 10, 11, 11 and a half games out of first place, even if you feel like you're having an okay season. Just thinking about this real quick. So that Strider-Degrom matchup is the is on a Sunday. You've got a day-night doubleheader before that. Neither team at this point has anybody that's really you know penciled in as those starters for that 7 o'clock uh, second game in that doubleheader. That's obvi- it looks to be like the makings of a bullpen game for both teams. If you've got Jacob DeGrom pitching that next day yeah. and you don't know how many innings you're going to get from him as he's going to be making his second start coming back from rehab, what happens in that Saturday second game and how much how many pitchers you have to use? I mean, that's going to be fascinating to see how what the Mets are able to do and then what do they have to do? How many innings do you have to back up DeGrom after that start on Sunday? So, and that's going to uh, that's going to be a really interesting watch. Yeah, it's going to be and there's so many different stories going into as we've talked about what these two clubs are going to look like so maybe the answer to what happens after a doubleheader and Jacob deGrom's second start back off the injured list is what have the New York Mets gone out and got over the course of the trade deadline I mean do they need another starting pitcher not particularly if you're getting Jacob deGrom back but if they could go out and strengthen their bullpen a little bit more or maybe have somebody that can kind of play that swingman role that could do a little bit more for you as a multi-inning reliever and again, as, as we've learned with the way that the Braves and with Alex Anthopoulos over the past few years has been building more layers of depth and being able to you know, sustainably uh, create a winner and create a roster that can answer some of its questions internally because after August the 2nd, you can't go out there and make deals with other clubs at that point for people who are eligible for the postseason roster. Yeah, that's the big thing, right? I mean, it's one trade deadline, although you can, again, as you mentioned, go out and get guys you just they may be of no no real use to you once you get to the postseason. But um, you know, these I th- expect both these teams to, to look a little bit different. We know the Braves have needs, as we talked about. they got to do something in that outfield after losing Adam Duvall. They could use a right-handed bat. Yeah. Maybe they go out and get a starter. You know, Ian Anderson, we know what he's capable of. But Spencer Strider, I will say this, he's 16 innings away from the most that he's pitched as a professional. How much is that going to be a factor when you think about innings for him and how you manage those and how much of a stress do you want to put on a guy that could be an absolute weapon in the postseason? Um, you know, and then obviously, you know, they could get a little bit better in the bullpen as well. Yeah, they could. And I do expect the Braves to address the bullpen. I mean, getting Kirby Yates back will be something that is a net positive for this club. You have had a lot of struggles out of Will Smith, though, so he's trying to pitch his way through that. You've had question marks in rotation from both Charlie Morton and more so from Ian Anderson. You got pretty good starts out of both those guys these last times out. And in particular, it was great to see Ian Anderson on Saturday be able to be more in command because that's the biggest thing. I mean, I don't care what the final line looks like as much as how did he make it happen. And I felt like we had both of those things working on Saturday where it was not only does his final line look great, six innings of shutout ball with one hit, one walk, and nine strikeouts, but the fact that he was commanding the strike zone 
I know it was the Diamondbacks. It's not you know necessarily going up against the kind of teams that you face in the postseason, but I think it could do a lot for building confidence. And as far as reps are concerned, and you know being able to start going out and making those changes happen in game, every one of these kinds of starts is valuable. And it's frustrating for watching Anderson too because we've seen him at the biggest stage be one of the, you know, a guy who the, the, the postseason resume to start his career was among the all-time greats. His first, you know, postseason and a half, they're talking about him and Christy Matheson, you're linking these two together. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was historic stuff from him, and watching him labor through starts, it was tough to watch. I mean, he had two, you know, in his last five starts before Saturday, he'd allowed seven earned runs. It was just like Where's the guy that, that was so dominant before? And to see him, you know, have his longest no hit bid against the, the Diamondbacks on Saturday, um, you know, just going six innings, one hit, striking out nine. It was like, okay, that's Ian Anderson, but can he string those starts together? Yeah, and that's the question he's going to have to answer. But I think that the mentality and the approach that he he used in order to go on and have a success on Saturday, yes, there was hard work. Yes, there's adjustments that are made. Yes, there's game planning. There's all those kinds of things. But I think mentally, he just said basically, to hell with it. Let's let's go out there and, and pitch a totally different way and be more aggressive. And that pitching more aggressively, getting ahead of hitters more often, that I think was something that really made him more effective on Saturday. And I hope to see a lot more of it in the future because I think that's when Ian Anderson's at his absolute best. I think the how he follows this up with the, the curveball usage is going to be fascinating because I, I said earlier, this was the the 24% rate uh, that he used it on Saturday was his most since May. So how is he going to utilize that pitch going forward to open up the door for that fastball, open up the door for that changeup? Uh, this could be a real turning point in his season is the effectiveness of that curveball. I think that it has to be. As far as wrapping up the month of July, the Braves won series after series after series. They have the best record of any team in the game of baseball or Major League Baseball since June the 1st. So the wins have been coming in bunches. Finishing off a sweep against the Diamondbacks on Sunday was a nice way to go into the off day, but they do have quite a test in front of them as they do have the Philadelphia Phillies for a couple of games. They get to finish off this homestand, but that 11-game road trip, Corey, I do think, that is going to tell us a lot about this season. And before you even get out on the road to do all of that, you have the trade deadline on Tuesday. So let me pose this question to you. I'm going to set the over-under at one and a half. You're going to take the over or the under on Braves trades by Alex Anthopoulos on or before Tuesday's deadline. I will take the over. Uh, I think uh, I'm I'm not going to call it. I think Brandon Drury would be great. Ian Happ again, all those. We, Jose Quintana, we threw all these names. Yeah. I think they pull at least two, two moves off. What about you? I'm going to take the over. I think that we see three trades. That's my guess here. I feel like it may not be, again, it's not about making the splashes, the biggest blockbuster trade right at the deadline. That hasn't really been the MO of Alex Anthopoulos. But if you look at the trade deadline in 2018, 2019, outside of the pandemic season in 20, and then looking again last year, 2021, it's about bringing in what he feels is quality and quantity. And those are the things that I think he's going to be looking for here because if you haven't looked at the Braves overall, They've got a pretty good record. They have a pretty good baseball team right here. We haven't seen the best of Ronald Acuna Jr. yet this year, I don't believe. I think Matt Olson is heating up at the exact right time. you got Austin Riley and Dansby Swanson playing like MVP candidates, and your starting rotation seems to be coming into form. So if you're able to get the pieces and then get back an Ozzie Albies, this is a club that I think has a lot out in front of it to be a very dangerous team to meet come October, and they proved it last year. $177 million payroll currently. It's a, the biggest in franchise history. How yeah. much are they willing to add to that 
uh, to get over the hump again. Uh, this is going to be a fascinating watch over these next two days. Yeah, it's an excellent question. And I know just from the conversations I've had at and around the club, they're very well aware of where they are as far as that payroll is concerned. They're also very well aware of how fans are showing up in droves and selling out Truist Park. And they are looking forward to putting more into this club. The trade deadline is an opportunity to perhaps do a little bit more of that. And then, of course, there's all kinds of things that we can get to once the hot stove rolls around. But that is way, 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 way around the corner. A very exciting week as far as trades are concerned. Two more quick questions for you. Yeses or noes. Shohei Otani, is he traded? No. Juan Soto, is he traded? Yes. I agree with you on that. I think it's going to be hard to trade Otani. I think he could move, but I think Soto definitely gets traded before the deadline. So that means we'll have an awful lot to talk about on From the Diamond come a week from now. Corey, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk about all these things. We appreciate you following along with us out there. Make sure you are doing so on Twitter. I'm at Grant McCauley. He is at Corey J. McCartney. Find the show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks, as always, to Stephen Gagliano for his help. This has been From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.